Good morning, friends. Welcome to our Tuesday morning uh, devotion time. Uh, if you were with us last week, uh, you know that we went over uh, Romans chapter 6. And the reason that we went over Romans 6 isn't just uh, due to my whim and fancy at any given time. It really wasn't that. But lately we've been looking at um, we've been looking at uh, the lectionary texts, uh, specifically the epistle texts, and then uh, the psalm that is connected with the lectionary for my devotions throughout the week. I give one on Tuesday here at Christ Hold Fast and to Hillside and to um, my church Epiphany, and then on Friday to Hillside in particular. And uh, in this week, we're looking at Romans 7, and Romans 7, of course, is all about the struggle of the Christian life. Now, if you were with us for Romans 6 last week, you know that Paul made it very abundantly clear that in our baptism, we died with Christ and were raised with Christ, that in that baptism, something actually happened, that we had been set free from sin and from the curse of sin and from the wages of sin and all of those great things. And so you get the sense that through this death uh, that happens in our baptism, you could probably get the sense if you just read Romans 6 in isolation that Paul may be making an argument for a sort of victorious Christian life. Um, you know, the idea that uh, we will not struggle with sin anymore as Christians, that we'll be beyond that because indeed we have victory. Well, if you had that thought after reading Romans 6, it's as if Paul wants to say, keep reading because I've got something to tell you. I'm going to tell you that the Christian life is actually a struggle between two natures, that of the flesh and that of the spirit. That's what, that's the reason I wore my shirt today. Simul justus et peccator, a phrase in Latin coined by the reformers that described that we are at one time simultaneously saint and sinner when we become Christians. And Romans 7 is really a perfect encapsulation of that reality and a very vulnerable, honest attempt by Paul to show his own ongoing struggle as a new creation. So with that, by way of introduction, Paul reads like this, verse 1, chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. This is, of course, Paul um, using an example that was very, very common within Jewish life. And he uses the picture of marriage to say, um, if a woman's husband dies, then she is now free to be remarried. She's free to be with someone else. He uses that as an analogy. It doesn't line up perfectly, but the application works. He says, verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul had talked about that in the last chapter, that that was sort of one of the points of us being made in the new creations, that God would bear fruit through us. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. 
But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Now, before I go on here, I just want to point out something very, very significant that Paul says the law actually does to the sinful human being. Rather than tamping down desire for sin, rather than controlling us, Paul says our sinful passions are aroused by that law, inflamed by the law of God. Now, he's going to answer how it is that this could be, but let's just camp there for a second and acknowledge that indeed we know this to be true from the reality of our lives. Everyone who has children has seen this work out in real life. I have three boys. Nothing inspired my children from the earliest ages to want to do something wrong than when I would command them that they could not do the thing. There's something about being told no that inflames us. There's something about being controlled that arouses this rebellious streak within us. And I didn't have to teach my kids that. This is just something they were born with, I assure you. And it is true for all of us. We never really lose that. Yes, we might find creative ways to sort of mask it. And yes, we might find creative ways to somewhat keep it under control. But that desire to push back, to be our own Lord, to declare our own sovereignty over our individual lives is indeed still there. And the law, rather than preventing that, actually arouses it all the more, arouses the sinful passions. This is very contrary to the way that Judaism of the time thought about the way the law worked. And so this is a really revolutionary statement that Paul is making. Let's continue. Verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? I mean, that the question makes sense. If the law arouses sinful passions, does that mean that the law is an instrument of evil? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would, have not, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. How about that? Paul says, I... I didn't even realize I was coveting. Then the law said, you shall not covet. And instead of my, my spirit going or my soul or my, my essence going, oh, that's right. I don't want to do that. Instead, now I found myself coveting all the more. Indeed, it goes back to that rebellious streak that the sinner naturally has against law. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Paul's statements here are really strong. I mean, sin lies dormant, dead. Apart from the law, the law comes, it arouses our flesh, and sin runs rampant. For sin seizing, or excuse me, verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. 
Now, Paul, as a faithful Jewish man, his whole life before converting to Christ, knew that the absolute, almost, I mean, unanimous view among the Judaism of the day, and really throughout its history, was that the law and the following of the law would bring life to its hearers. Indeed, the Old Testament has many verses where essentially the command is, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Don't do this and you will die. It's pretty cut and dried. If you go back to when the commands were given, it's very clear. Do this, it equals life. Don't do this, it equals death. What does Paul say the commandment actually produces in sinners? It kills us. The law kills us. It shows us that we are unable to fulfill it. And the law is unbending. The law doesn't sort of find a way to meet you in the middle. It doesn't say, well, at least you gave it your best shot. No, 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 no. There's no flexibility with the law. It is not made out of rubber. It is steel, unbending. Do this, you'll live. Don't do this, you die. Everybody upon hearing the law realizes they haven't fulfilled it and realizes then they're worthy of death. Verse 11, verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Now, in case you're again prone to thinking that this is the law's fault because the law is mean or bad, no, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good nothing wrong with the law everything it says is true it just so happens that everything inside of us is bent and the law reveals that reality it's not the law's fault that we don't follow it it's ours so paul continues verse 13 did that which is good then bring death to me by no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Again, the commandment is like a mirror. It reveals our sin. This is why uh, Luther would describe this use of the law, this function of the law as being the ultimate, the primary function of the law. Yes, the law exists to sort of curb us and guide us, sure. But really what it does is reveal why we need a Savior at all, because it shows us our sin and that we're worthy of judgment. Now, verse 14, we start to take a turn. Paul gets very personal. Paul gets, frankly, very confessional. And I find it immensely encouraging that a giant of the faith like the Apostle Paul would be willing to be so vulnerable. Here's what he says. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I, not, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You ever experienced that? I know you have. I have. I know every Christian has. I've been a pastor now for 13 plus years. And what I can tell you is that the vast majority of time when I get together with people to have counseling sessions or to discuss what's going on in their life, the conversation often goes like this. 
I keep on struggling with this. I keep on giving in to this. And I know it's not right. And I know I shouldn't do it. Why on earth do I keep on struggling with this stuff? Why do I keep on going back to the thing that I know will hurt me, that I know will hurt my family, that I know will do damage to my friends? What is it in me? That's what Paul's talking about here. Paul is saying, I, I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want and I do the very thing I hate. Yes, welcome to the simul. Simultaneously, saint and sinner. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now a couple things. Again, Paul's reiterating that same point. I keep on going after these things. I'm, you know, I've got this struggle going on inside of me. I want to do good. I want to, I have a desire to follow God and to, to, to live a life of holiness, to live a life of goodness on behalf of my neighbor. But I keep on going back to the junk and I keep on struggling with it. And if we're honest, it's a daily occurrence. Now, some have said, Paul is so vivid here, and the way he talks, you know, that I, uh, he has no ability to carry it out. This couldn't be Paul talking about his life as a Christian, because, of course, he's got the Spirit. Sure, he has the ability to carry it out. Ah, remember, folks, language is important. Paul does not say in this passage, I had the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out in the past. This is all present tense language. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Paul is not talking about his pre-conversion life. Paul is talking about the very real struggle that comes with conversion life. This is the truth of the Christian life. It is a battle. As Galatians 5 says, another letter written by Paul, there's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. We are simultaneously saint and sinner at the exact same time, always until we finally meet our maker. He goes on, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, again, just in case you're tempted to sort of go, well, maybe this is Paul's pre-conversion life. He says here that in his mind, he delights in the law of God and his inner being. Pre-conversion folk don't delight in the law of God in their inner being. That is not a description. So, this is present tense. And this is Paul being very transparent about the struggles he's having. What can he do? What can you and I do when we recognize the same reality in our lives? When we look at 
our failures, when we look at our sins, when we look at our addictions, when we look at the, the constant going back to things that we know we ought not do, and yet it's still there. Well, I think the only thing we can do is cry out with the Apostle Paul in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's a plea. He looks at his life, he says, man, I am a wretch. Later on, he says to Timothy, I'm the chief of sinners. We look at ourselves, we look at our struggles, we look at our failures, and we go, who on earth can save this guy that's still going back to the same problems? How can we be delivered? Listen to Paul's next words. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. Again, and again, and again, and again. Every single day. Every single day. And that answer will never end. It turns out the old Sunday school dictum is right. Jesus is the answer. When you're struggling with sin, which is every day, because you are simultaneously saint and sinner, you go back to Jesus. And you know, as 1 John promises, that he will always forgive those who confess their sin. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. John wrote those words to Christians because he knows that Christians still struggle every single day, as Paul mentions here. The conclusion of the chapter, he says, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Simul. Simultaneously, saint and sinner. And then beginning in chapter 8, and I have to go into it just briefly because in the original there's no chapter breaks, so you don't want to make too much of a demarcation here. What are the very next words? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That is our hope, Christian. As we continue to battle day in and day out, and as we continue to even fail and fall, Day in and day out, our hope is banked on Jesus Christ and him alone because he is the propitiation for our sins always and forever. And that is good news. So, you who are simultaneously saints and sinners, you have Jesus interceding on your behalf. He's promised to deliver you and has saved you forever. May that be your comfort. God bless you.